Hey, everybody. It is Glenn Thrush with Politico's Off Message Podcast. The days are getting very, very short. It seems like it's dark at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, A perfect segue to our guest, who I will tell you about later, Darkness. Uh, I just finished a a long story, a a very, very long story. Ten decision points uh, 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 that really kind of decided the fate of the 2016 campaign. And one of the most interesting things tidbits that I came across, and I, I recommend you guys, uh, I'm going to plug myself here, uh, that you check it out on politico.com. It's for the, for the magazine. One of the things that really blew me away is that the internal focus groups the Clinton campaign had were finding that swing state voters were responding really, really well to Trump's darkest, most pessimistic messages. It's sort of the opposite of the assumption you make about American politics, that everybody wants a morning in America Ronald Reagan message. Uh, in political parlance, <clears throat> there's a talk, uh, there's a definition uh, of this as the diagnosis uh, and then the medicine. Well, Donald Trump campaign, uh, particularly his big speeches, were all about diagnosis and very little bit about prescription. Hillary Clinton's campaign was all about prescription with very little bit about diagnosis. What Donald Trump intuitively picked up, and I mean intuitively, because he didn't do any polling for the first, I don't know, seven, eight months of his campaign, was that people wanted to hear about the darkness. People wanted someone to articulate their grievances. I remember early on in this campaign, seeing Donald Trump's book at a Costco, uh, Crippled America, with his face, and his face looked like an orange fist. He wanted to look as mean and as tough as possible. And I, you know, I forgot who was with me, probably my kids. And I said, who the hell wants to see that? I mean, like, that is not the image that an American politician is looking to project. Look at a John Kennedy poster, for God's sakes, right? Uh, Even Richard Nixon, who, you know, uh, you know, didn't exactly look like the smiley face, uh, went out of his way to try to to try to project a softer image. But that's what we missed, folks. And, and I think that's what we, and by we, I don't just mean the media, I think everybody, pollsters missed it. The darkness of the mood. People wanted anger uh, to be vented. So uh, darkness versus light, folks, that's the theme uh, today. And I think that might be the theme of the next four years. Very fittingly, our guest today is David Brock, the prince of darkness uh, on the left. Uh, uh, <clears throat> I've known him for a, a fairly long time, both in a positive and a negative way. But over the years... Uh, Brock, as he's as he sort of expanded his pro-Hillary Clinton empire, and, and for those of you who don't know, David Brock started off as a Hillary hunter for the American Spectator magazine. He uncovered a lot of uh, really juicy stories uh, from Arkansas, including, uh, I believe he broke uh, the story about uh, the state troopers, uh, trooper gate in, uh, in Little Rock. Uh, but over the years, he really flipped became a Hillary uh, Clinton stalwart, and his relationship with the media or various people in the media kind of thawed. What's fascinating about this conversation with him, he will use a term to describe the media that just levitated me from my chair. Uh, Brock is moving back in the other direction. So watch out, uh, reporters. He is, uh, after having spent the last three or four years schmoozing us up, talking with us, pushing opposition research, explaining strategy. I think he is about to go into uh, full Donald Trump mode uh, on the media. Really, really interesting uh, moment. And uh, another moment to look out for is uh, he has a personal connection to Comet uh, Ping Pong uh, Pizzeria and Pizzagate. And it's a real moment when he's talking about the human impact of that stuff and fake news. And now, of course, for our typical business, please follow us on iTunes and rate us. And you can really pretty much now due to these new agreements that we have, uh, get us on practically every platform. Spotify is my favorite. I listen to us on Spotify. And yes, I do listen to us over and over again. Um, Without any further ado, here is David Brock. Back when I came to Washington uh, from New York in 2005, 2006, I wrote a whole bunch of stories about media matters Yeah, because you guys were uh, very tough on us. And by us, I mean me. Yeah. And you had a guy working for you who's subsequently become a friend of mine, Carl Frisch, yes. who was really 
all over my ass. Yeah, he was the communications director at Media Matters at the time. And, you know, Media Matters would rather be feared than loved. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm sure we did. Uh, I don't remember specifics, but I'm sure we, we tried to go after you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Carl called up my uh, editor-in-chief. Uh, and No, actually, you know what happened? Carl wrote an incredibly nasty email to me and CC'd it to my editor-in-chief. And I ah. wrote an email back to Carl saying, you need to get a real job. I suggest you intern for Wayne Barrett. <laughs> Great. And he cc'd it to my boss. My boss called right. me all the way back to that's Melville. That's the Media Matters method. Just to get me to Absolutely. lose my shit. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we just had a, a, an event, like a fairly large international and national event. Yes. Um, like, I guess I'll just start with a really open-ended question. Uh, your candidate, Hillary Clinton, who you have known for a while since you kind of jumped, jumped over the wall, yeah. uh, jumped sides, uh, didn't fare particularly well. Right. Um, what went wrong? Well, so I would start with um, a few things. Um, first of all, uh, I think there's a consensus uh, among pollsters and experts, Nate Silver, Mike Podhorzer from AFL-CIO and others, that the Comey letter, uh, that basically Comey, I'll, I'll say it in my words, Comey, Comey stole the election from, from Hillary um, with the two letters. Um, and, uh, you know, the seeds of that, go back to his performance uh, when he announced no criminal wrongdoing uh, and inappropriately then tried In to July, hang her out. To, yes, yeah. and inappropriately tried to hang her out to dry uh, for being careless, et cetera, which he shouldn't have done. He should have just said nothing. There was no criminal wrongdoing. And what happened was there are elements in the FBI, um, right-wing elements in the FBI, that wanted a different outcome there. They were furious. Um, and so flash forward to the letter, I think, you know, Comey's a good man who did the wrong thing. Um, but I think he was trying to get ahead of uh, elements in the FBI who uh, who might have leaked the fact that these emails existed, and then he might have looked like he was covering up for Hillary. But what I don't understand, Glenn, actually, is why did Loretta Lynch let him send that letter? Um, you know, uh, oh, I, so, I don't understand that. Did she really? Does she? Uh, I don't understand the chain of command. She should have forbade him from sending the letter. What do you think? Uh, let's just play a game. What, yeah. what would Jeff Sessions do? You know, paging Bobby Kennedy. Why did that happen? I think it was a dereliction of duty. And I also think they're derelict in not investigating what went on in the FBI now and and reporting back to the public. Well, the one thing I would say, uh, and it's I tweeted it at the time. Is I think it it is very significant to note what Rudy Giuliani learned and said on the air. Absolutely, and, and I know very well from covering Rudy briefly as a prosecutor, mostly as as mayor, that he has enormously deep connections uh, in That's the right. in Joint Terrorism Task Force, but also the local right. FBI. And he did let that slip. And so, so the Comey letter, I would just say, you know, you want to be the Bob Woodward of your generation. No. We're not going to get an investigation out of the, this uh, White House. So there's a book there. So second. Um, the Russians, the Russian propaganda effort, foreign influence. Third, um, you know, voter suppression by the Republicans in North Carolina and Wisconsin seemed to have worked. The fake news phenomenon, uh, whereby, according to BuzzFeed, you know, that uh, more people shared the fake news than the top 19 credible mainstream media outlets. The mainstream media was absolutely uh, awful, uh, both in building up Trump for ratings and money, uh, the false equivalence with Hillary and the Clinton rules of journalism, as I wrote about in the last book I wrote, Killing the Messenger, um, and sexism. Uh, some people just weren't ready to vote for a woman. Um, and uh, the millennials, uh, Hillary had a problem with millennials because of Bernie Sanders. Um, he introduced her to an entire generation of millennials as the lady from Goldman Sachs, which was false and wrong. She had a better plan for Wall Street than Senator Sanders did. But a lot of those millennials either didn't vote or they threw their votes away for Jill Stein, the Ralph Nader of the cycle, uh, or uh, Johnson. Somebody did an analysis. It may have been Dave Wasserman. I don't want to give him too much credit, though. I think he's great uh, that millennials were could could. In the ultimate analysis, in, uh, in Michigan and Wisconsin in particular, told the entire tale. Yes, I, I, I saw that, and I agree. Explain for people, because, you know, truth be told, I'm not entirely certain <laughs> how this all works, yeah. how your empire of uh, outside groups uh, uh, relates itself to the actual campaign. Sure. So... Um, the four principal groups, Media Matters is our media watchdog group. I started it in mid-04, too late to really help John Kerry with the swift boating. Uh, and the, I started Media Matters with the help of the Clintons, who saw a need for an aggressive media watchdog group after what they had been through in the 90s. Um, 
I started American Bridge, which is a super PAC, in early 2011. I was the first Democrat to plant the super PAC flag after what happened in 2010, and we got outspent, and there was a lot of hand-wringing among liberals about Citizens United, which I, you know, Citizens United disagree with, but I said we have to have a super PAC structure. So we were successful in uh, in uh, helping to define Romney in 12 and less successful this time around, which we can get into. Uh, Crew is Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. It's an ethics watchdog group that I took over a couple of years ago because the... Somewhat controversially. Some yes. people thought you were a kind of, yeah. Well, people thought I was too partisan. And uh, so... That been uh, Melanie Sloan, right, Crew? Melanie Sloan right. was the founding executive director. She wanted to go to the private sector. The group was going to go under. I took it over, took responsibility for financing it, found a replacement for Melanie. And you know they did great work in 16. They filed the first IRS complaint against the Trump Foundation, which was successful, and that drew the media attention onto the foundation. So more about that, but we're going to build this organization up in the Trump era. Judicial Watch on the right has a $30 million a year annual budget. Crew has a $2 million a year annual budget, and there are a lot of lawsuits and lots of complaints. And you've got Norm. Uh, we just signed up. A- yes, we just signed up President Obama's ethics are, Norm Eisen, and President Bush's, which I'm very happy about, uh, Richard Painter, because, you know, like-minded Republicans uh, are a group that we're going to have to reach out to, because this is now about small d democracy it's not about capital d democrats in some ways uh and i was also the ambassador to czechoslovakia we should say i don't know why that's right i feel compelled to bring that up but i do (laughs) and then i have a fourth entity which is a for-profit media company called share blue uh we've been running that for about eight months um the idea there was to see if we could create an avidly pro-hillary website that would work um so it's more pro-hillary and making the case for hillary than it was anti-trump although there was anti-trump content and um, he's got a million followers on Facebook, um, and uh, it's a work in progress, but which we could talk more about. But I, I believe there's space for an antidote to Breitbart in this era, and that's what I want to do. Uh, that's what I want to do with Share Blue, unless George Soros and Tom Steyer give me a billion dollars to start a real media outlet, which is what we need in this climate, because journalism is going to be significantly weaker. MSNBC is under pressure from NBC to tro- to toe a Trump line, uh, and and we need some alternative media out there. Do you think? Uh, let's just get back. Let's, sure, because we because we're speaking on the on the day after the announcement that the president of the United States will remain as the executive producer of The Apprentice. Yeah. Uh, well, now we know why the Apprentice tapes, the rest of them were suppressed. Um, the 14,000 unaired uh, outtakes that we tried very hard to get during the campaign. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's an outrage. And I know that there are hosts at MSNBC now who feel they, their jobs are, are at risk because the brass is for Trump. Wow. They've told you so. One has, yeah. And I've heard of others. So in terms of the... Um in terms of the, let's look at the campaign, campaign yeah. a, a little bit. I just did this uh, opus uh, published today that talks about some of the issues. You know, a couple of the the things that I go through: uh-huh. uh, perpetual tension between Robbie and the other Robbie Mook, the campaign manager, and the other consultants. They felt he had walled off data, had had potentially cherry picked stuff. Him and his folks deny that. Um, and there was also, with the exception apparently of Jake Sullivan, Jake Sullivan appears to be the only person of the dozen folks who were on the daily scheduling call who ever proposed that she make more appearances in Michigan and Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just set the table on sure. that. Give yeah. me sort of a general uh, detailed diagnosis of what you think went wrong in Brooklyn. Sure. Well, I'm reluctant to do finger pointing, um, but um, uh, but uh, if Democrats don't have a correct understanding of what went wrong, we're never going to get it right going forward. And so it's a discussion that unfortunately has to happen. So here's my take, Glenn. Um, I, I haven't read your piece yet, but so the campaign made tactical errors, so she never went to Wisconsin. That, that, that wasn't what made the difference here. They made one strategic error. Um, and uh, let me just say what it wasn't because I was watching Morning Joe this morning and I'm sick and tired of Hillary was a bad candidate and had no message. That's the Kellyanne Conway line. That's the line of the uh, Scarborough Democrats and it's bunk. Here's what went wrong. Let's go back to 2015. Uh, the campaign allowed Hillary's image to be publicly destroyed. Okay. Now you can look at the polling and I've studied this a little bit and you can see what happened in 15 and you can analytically see 
the favorability is crashing. Well, we okay? started, let's just say we sort of started in, in I would say, j let's use January 14th as a reference point. She was right. north of 60% in terms of approval and That's kind right. of lingered in the 50s significantly That's right. thereafter. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, so a few things happened in 15. Uh, so the campaign began. Uh, and uh, we know that from 13, there were eight Republican super PACs that were engaged in a strategy that formed in 13, when she left the State Department, to uh, to show her to be what, remember, Kevin McCarthy later confessed to be, the strategy of showing her to be untrustable, okay? So you have the Republicans doing that, and that that's what the Republicans do, I get it. Um, but then you had, uh, uh, so, so, the, so what I wanna say is the only mistake Hillary made, in my view, she won the popular vote, she won all three debates, she listened to some bad advice. I don't think the candidate can set the press strategy. And let me tell you what I mean by that. So here's what happens in 15. So one, Clinton Cash comes out. Uh, and that is a right-wing book uh, that the New York Times enters to an agreement to help promote. Uh, so that sets one narrative uh, going forward that the Clinton Foundation is corrupt and dishonest. Uh, and uh, then the email stories break. First in the Times, the Times runs three stories on the emails in the, about three months, all of them flawed. The first one claiming that she violated a federal rule that was not in place until after she left the State Department. Uh, Jen Palmieri wrote what I thought was a brilliant letter to the Times, but then they dropped the ball. I mean, the Times should have been iced out. Um, uh, it goes back to what I said at the beginning about fearing versus being liked. The strategy shouldn't have been to be liked by the press. It should have been to be feared by the press. The editors and the reporters at the Times who were responsible for that coverage should have been fired or uh, the time, or, or no cooperation. Now, I brought one thing with you just to give you an example. So let's just talk about Andrea Mitchell for a second. Wait, okay. before, before we get yeah. to Mitchell, let's talk about something else. Sure. So in terms of the, so you, sounds to me like you are advocating, and I don't necessarily mean this in a yeah. nice way, uh -huh. uh, a strategy not dissimilar to what uh, the Trump campaign did with some outlets, not the Times, yeah. by the way. Mm -hmm. Look, this is a lesson learned. Donald Trump intimidated the press and bullied the press. I'm not saying you have to intimidate and bully, but you have to be tough. The press are animals, and they need to be treated that way. Uh, if you're Certainly if you're a Clinton, because of Thanks, the history. Uh, present company accepted. <laughs> um, but listen, you've got to be tough. And, and Donald Trump's press strategy worked, and Harvard's study came out the other day, yeah. right, where her coverage was more negative than his, so his strategy worked. Now, I want to just give you an example. Andrew wait, wait, Mitchell's I want to know. I want to hit you one more, one more time. One more, right. time, one more time on the... On the on Come the, on. We got a mutual friend over there who covered the Trump campaign for the... Uh, over where? Uh, over at the New York Times yeah. for uh, uh, for uh, the Times. Uh, she wrote some extremely tough stories about him. Yeah. Do you think... Uh, I mean, do you think that is entirely fair? Well, first of all, yeah. let's get back to the prag sure. pragmatism of this. Yep. Every single person who worked in Brooklyn has a subscription to the New York Times. Right. They get most of their world news, and they have tremendous uh, connections with people on the editorial page. The Clinton campaign and the Times, I've always viewed Hillary to a certain extent. Like, we podcasted with Jill Abramson a while back. Yeah. Weirdly mirror image of Hillary Clinton. The Times and the Clinton organization are these strange... Funhouse mirror images of one another. Mm -hmm. How the hell could that actually have pragmatically been executed? Sure. Well, let me just say, I just want to be clear. Yeah, I'm yeah. not saying the Times was soft on Trump. Um, they were not. The problem we had, we, people who were trying to defeat Trump, was the great coverage in the Times often never made it to television. Okay? Front page story on housing discrimination in the, in the right. Trump family. Never on TV. Okay? Sure, sure. Now, I wrote Killing the Messenger, as you know. And I, I have 10,000 words in there about the history of the Times and the Clintons, and I believe there's an anti-Clinton institutional bias at the Times. And you're I talking about it. going back to Whitewater and Jeff Girth. I do. And, yeah. you know, I wrote that partly for people in this Clinton campaign. Right. And the only one I know of who read the book was President Clinton, who stayed up for two nights and called me and, and talked about it. But I predicted this. Okay? So now what I want to illustrate with Andrea Mitchell is that um, you don't kiss up to... Uh, the press, okay? So, Andrea Mitchell, these are Media Matters materials, okay? In reporting on Hillary Clinton, media get facts wrong on Colin Powell's private email use. The issue here was that the State Department OIG report said that Colin Powell used his personal email 
on an exclusive basis for day-to-day operations. Right. MSNBC's Andrea Mitchell repeatedly claims Powell used government email. Why? Why deliberately confuse viewers? Okay. Uh, Network evening news programs ignore crucial facts in reports on Clinton AIDS immunity agreement. Okay. So uh, CBS, ABC, and NBC hype claims that the, uh, remember the aide to Hillary Clinton, Brian Pagliano. The guy who's given yes. the, immu- uh, the immunity yeah. agreement. Uh, this signaled a troubling development for Hillary Clinton while ne- ne- neglecting to inform viewers that Pagliano's limited immunity is commonly requested right. and received in these types of investigations is not indicative of guilt. Uh, that was Andrea Mitchell on NBC. Uh, third, broadcast news widely covers Anthony Weiner's story, and I'm not saying they shouldn't, but ignores abuse accusations against Trump campaign CEO. That's fine. You can agree or disagree that those you're are talking about the ban- You're talking about yep. the Bannon stuff. Yes. I, I would yeah. give you some significant pushback. I okay. think the Bannon thing was covered. But pretty here's my point about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let me just tell you this. Yeah. So in the course of the Weiner coverage, Andrea Mitchell says, of course there's going to be political fallout for Clinton. Connecting the Abbott story to Clinton not having a press conference, okay, and suggesting it would remind voters about Hillary's own choices 20 years ago, 19 years ago, an apparent reference to Clinton's decision not to leave her husband after he had an affair. Now, what the hell? That is not journalism. Now, well, wait a sec, wait a sec. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you. No, no. The, you interrupt um, all, all you want. The, okay, so Andrea Mitchell is always the first one on the conference calls. Andrea yeah. Mitchell's been covering Hillary for a long time, including, right. including at State, yep. and did some pieces in State that were just, uh, and I, if I'm not mistaken, she was probably with her in 95 in the, during the Beijing speech. Yep. Um, so Andrea Mitchell has connections to the Clinton yeah. folks that you can't sure. believe. Isn't it on Brooklyn, dude? To have called up Andrea yes. and be like, what the that's, hell did you do wrong? Glenn, that's my point. Okay. So what did they do? They gave her the interview. They gave Andrea Mitchell the interview on Hillary's emails. And Eric Wemple wrote a piece, you know, a good piece questioning yeah, I remember the, the, the wisdom of that. So here's what I would have done with email. So I say she was poorly advised. Um, so there was... A slow motion swift voting of Hillary Clinton in 15, okay? And now you think Democrats would have learned from 04, but no. Um, So um, what could one have done? Um, The lesson of the swift voting thing was to lean in, right? Uh, Not avoid the press. Um, Lean in. So they got off to a fine start with the press conference, um, but then... Uh, they were kind of quiet for five months until Hillary gave that interview and said she was sorry and, and, and admitted error. The David Weir interview. Right. I think she was, one, I think she was poorly advised. She wasn't prepped. The first interview she gave, and I don't recall the time frame on this, was with Brianna Keelar over right. at CNN. And I was told that That's she refused right. to take prep before that. Well, I don't know about that, but yeah. but all I know is the people... The people who were who were in charge of the email strategy had a wrong strategy. You should have leaned into it. She she should have just said, in, in my opinion, yeah. this was allowed. I wouldn't have apologized. The apology was oh, interesting. Okay. The apology was, see, when you once you apologize, then the press wants you to get down on your knees and say you're sorry. They are not appeasable. Uh, Trump apologized for nothing, including the horrible tape, right? So um, no apology. I, I did it. I was allowed. Now, maybe I shouldn't be judged by the technical technological standards that were around in 09, in 15 and 16. Uh, so, you know, I, I happen to, I carry two devices. Um, I happen to also use a flip phone. So I get it. She didn't want to carry the two devices. Right. She's got a lot of incoming and it was not it was not convenient. Maybe, and I'm speculating, maybe yep. she thought it would be more secure. And in, in fact, it ends up being more secure. Right. Um, there were senior people. I mean, Anne-Marie Slaughter, I think, r- has written about this. She was the policy planning director that she used at Princeton EDU address. So this this went on. Um, and, and then have a press conference every week on the email if that's what the press wants. And just... Well, Just, you know, say it, but well, but make a mockery of it because it was a mockery and it was a minor story. So one of the okay, so one of the things, and by the way, history will judge this. And my sense is is history is already judging it because Donald Trump doesn't want to appoint a special prosecutor. Uh, so I think there is a judgment that being made uh, in by history here, right? Um, but I would say, in terms of the um, uh, in terms of 
watching the way that Trump dealt with the Access Hollywood tape, which is prima facie a much, I mean, it is a yeah. much more down. It fulfills right. all of the the requirements of a is of a campaign killing story. There's video for Christ's sakes. Right. He's saying it in his own words. Right. Right. And in doing this TikTok that I just finished, Bannon and Trump and Kellyanne Conway put their heads together and said, you don't try to defend the indefensible, you go right on the attack. Yeah. We on the outside were standing and looking at them doing that disgusting, and I thought it was gross, uh, with, with the uh, Clinton accusers, yeah. including right. Kathy Shelton, who, whose story I uncovered, the rape victim. Yeah, sure. And, uh, and I thought that he's done, but in fact, in that was the germ of a counterattack. Because he, because he was able to pivot. It was an indefensible thing. You couldn't really explain the details of it, so right. he didn't bother to try. Yeah, that's right. So, um, I mean, is that, the, I mean, uh, yeah, is that I a version right. of what you would yes, have done? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. They did the right thing, and it worked. My sister voted for Donald Trump, and her response was, it was locker room talk. So it, it worked. Right. My sister got the talking point. Right. Right. Okay. So just on one final thing yeah, yeah, uh, with the campaign, um, uh, and then we should move to something else, but... In 15, Hillary was not defended. Uh, I don't know where priorities was. Um, We're talking about tell people what priorities. Priorities was the television uh, ad fund for Hillary. Now, I had a group that I didn't mention up at the top, Glenn, because we've closed it because the campaign's over. I had a group called Correct the Record, which we started in 13 to deal with the strategy the Republicans had of showing her to be not trustworthy. And uh, it it had coordinated status with the campaign which meant that we could not do paid advertising. So we were out defending her, uh, but I don't know where the money was on TV. And then I'm going to I'm gonna have to say that you're going to ask me, we were out defending her and that didn't work. Uh, and I'm going to say that uh, at one point we were told by the Clinton campaign not to defend the Clinton Foundation when it was under attack. Yeah, let's talk about that because I, I swiped at that in some of my earlier reporting on Did this. Did you? There was a real... That's right. Yeah. There was a sense, first of all, there was a real lack of coordination between the campaign and the foundation in general. Just right. give me a little, as best as you can, give me some granularity on what went down. Sure. So, well, here's what I know. Um, the Clinton Foundation was under sustained attack. Um, and uh, it was correct the record's job to help defend it. And I was told by my staff that they were told by the campaign staff not to do it, not to do their job. So I phoned Robbie and I said, I'd heard this from my staff and this can't possibly be true. You know, help me out here. Uh, He said, he stumbled around and said it was complicated. Uh, I said, what's complication? Um, He said there's disagreement between the Clinton Foundation and the Clinton campaign about how to mount a defense. I said, this has been going on for months. Uh, you got you haven't hammered that out yet it, it's it's just i i was i was speechless so uh, he just, said there was, was a call coming that day yeah. between the two the clinton foundation the campaign to you know iron this out and he would call me back um he he never called me back uh and i told my own staff to keep defending the Clinton Foundation, but we're a surrogate arm of the campaign, and you need the campaign on board for this. What was the justification for the campaign not wanting to defend them? So I don't know the answer, um, but my speculation is that uh, there was a view inside that the foundation somehow wasn't Hillary's problem, even though her name was on it, and let the foundation clean up whatever they need to clean That's up on their own. Well, I know that. Clinton cash book, I, I'm just yeah. saying, I'm yeah. speculating. I, I, there may be more to it, but the, the bottom line is they didn't get defended. Did you ever talk to the president about that? Did I talk to President Clinton about that? I did not. No. Uh, I talked to him about the fact that the campaign had no uh, discernible online strategy. Um, I talked to him uh probably around Iowa or New Hampshire, and said there's something. It's not my area of expertise, but I said there's something wrong in the digital operation because it's not connecting. Sanders is connecting. They were slow to realize Sanders was connecting. Uh, And I said something has to be done. Uh, And so uh, nothing was done. So I hired 15 kids in Correct the Record who were uh, uh, very passionate for Hillary, and we tried to flood the zone with social media. But I didn't have the billion dollars. Well, it's also an organic had. thing. I, I, it um, wasn't connecting. She had nothing going for her online. And 
you know, Cher Blue, uh, you know, was was making arguments that actually were connecting with the grassroots, my my for profit thing. But anyway, so I didn't address the foundation issue with the president. No. Um, at the around that time, people like Jeff Weaver and Tad Devine were uh, telling me that um, they had no problem sort of sharing their strategy with the. You know, they had this wonderful thing where they would create these videos. Essentially, they created content that people wanted to consume. Like the America video and the stuff they did on the Florida sure. migrant workers. Yeah. And that would then become, it wasn't explicitly linked to fundraising, but they said that essentially created, particularly with young people, because that's how they consume information, yeah. that that created this incredible momentum. None, nothing of that type was really done. Right. It wasn't. You know, what Cher Blue did, so Hillary had the problem of uh, being the status quo candidate and the candidate of continuity when voters wanted change. So, and I don't know that this would have worked for the campaign overall, right. but it probably would have worked for their digital strategy. What we framed her as, not a victim, but we framed her as the underdog in a society filled with rampant sexism and media bias. And those items, we did an item called Hillary Clinton is one of the most honest ethical politicians in America that was shared two million times more than the New York Times endorsement of Hillary. So there was an appetite for that. So here's the deal. This is another aspect of what I just wrote about, which was the dials on Trump, his closing argument after the third debate and his nomination speech. When John Anzalone, one of the pollsters, did the dials on that, the really dark stuff spiked in swing state focus groups. Mm -hmm. So the dark... People wanted a taste of the darkness, right? Yeah. But, and if I'm sitting here with sure. David Brock, who <laughs> can no, deliver the darkness. Uh, <laughs> I tried. You know, you try, I tried, man. I tried. I mean, I, 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 tried, I, tried, I tried to have a, a strategy with regard to Senator Sanders. I was told by the campaign that there was none uh, and nothing would work. And, you know, I got in trouble over the – when I requested his medical records, I got in trouble with the campaign. Um uh, I uh, so the, let me explain the coordinated sure. status. So the coordinated status was, you're basically under their thumb, but you don't have to run everything by them. We're talking about CTR. Yeah, correct the record. That's right. right. The 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 pro Hillary defense squad. Okay. And who was your other? Who was your counterpart that you would pick up the phone and talk to? Robbie. Robbie. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, occasionally John. Um, so. I got the idea, so I was very frustrated because I could see Sanders coming. I wrote in Killing the Messenger that if there was a strong primary challenge, inevitably that challenger would make the same kind of attacks on Hillary's character that the Republicans had been making and would make in the fall, right. which is what happened. The Sanders campaign made a decision to go off the positive and to do the lady from Goldman Sachs stuff. So. But I, I, I wrote that six months before Bernie was catching on, and I didn't name Sanders. I said, any challenger. So anyway, I got this idea. We have to put the Sanders campaign on defense because we're just taking all this crap from them. So I noticed that he hadn't released his medical records, and it was a request that is common that most, I think all candidates end up releasing their medical records. So I didn't talk to the campaign about it. Um, I talked to James Carville just to check myself. He thought it was a great idea. Then uh, Politico sort of preempted my call by writing that I was going to do this. And then lo and behold, um, uh, that night uh, was, the, was the incident where John tweeted that I should uh, chill out and that we weren't uh, running a fitness physical fitness test for the presidency or something like that. And so... Um, the campaign was unhappy that I did that. Um, I never knew if they were unhappy substantively or they were just unhappy because they didn't control it because um, this was a very controlling culture. Right. Um, or if she was pissed off and told John to do something like that. Well, here's the, I doubt it because here's why. Yeah. She was asked the next morning on the Sunday shows about this and she could have thrown me under the bus and she said that he should release his return, his, his records just like, That's right, I just like she did. Right. And then he did release them. So, but here was the effect on Correct the Record of that. Um, so I took my lumps uh, and, uh, and then I obeyed. Uh, and so the out of the box thinking that one might have had or the more aggressive things that one might have had, basically, uh, basically that ended. And the Sanders people still blame me for all sorts of things that bad that they think happened to them that I never did because that was all I did. Right. And, and, and then, 
you know, the incident, the, the way to look at it actually is through the WikiLeaks lens. So the, that was the incident that triggered John to, uh, that's triggered near a, Near and John and the head to have of, this exchange. The head of right. Center for American Progress, who's, who is a successor. And to John. A, to John right. at the same yeah. place and is a, a very close friend of uh, his. Right. Um, so uh, so anyway, I didn't study it that closely. There's a back and forth between John and Nira in which John refers to me as an unhinged narcissist. And Nira writes that I'm a soulless unhinged narcissist and a Manchurian operative uh, secretly trying to bring Hillary down because of this. Well, hold on. I, can, I, can I just tell you something? <laughs> I'm sorry. You are definitely, definitely a hinged narcissist. Unhinged or hinged? Hinged. You're completely hinged. Well, you know, I really objected to the soulless part because I'm very soulful. You are very, I will say. <laughs> you have it. it is a dark soul, but it is there. So anyway, and you're from Tacoma Park, it, right? So it, it didn't go over way. well. Let's just put it that way. And so, you know, <laughs> what can I say? Did you, did you reach out to them? Uh, no, you know, Nira sent me a very nice email in which she apologized for saying terrible things. Um, and uh, when I ran into John, uh, you know, we had a, a little laugh. And uh, I have to say that um, even though I'm, I'm, you know, doing some criticism here, you know, a lot of these people are my friends, colleagues. They worked really hard. They killed themselves for her. Yeah. I just feel like they made this error in how they handled. And we some should of these say, issues. I don't know if is, is this. Um, Maybe this hasn't been reported yet, but didn't Nira played a not insignificant role in terms of introducing you to the Clintons at a time when they did not want to necessarily, right? Yeah, so the story yeah. is, right, and John helped me as well. So back in 03, um, uh, I got a call from President Clinton uh, to thank me for writing Blinded by the Right, which was my memoir and confession of and Okay, and I, I have to say... The, uh, seriously, uh, and, I'm, and this is not a plug. I hope you don't make another dime. Buy it for five cents off of Amazon. Yeah, that's right. It is. Just, I got to say, it is one of the first books I read when I when I first moved here. It is essential reading for anybody, and a total blast. If for nothing, than the Armstrong Williams story. But keep going. <laughs> thank you. Thanks very much. So, um, President Clinton called to thank me for writing that book, and I had had the idea for Media Matters in my head, and right. so I explained that to him. He asked me, "What are you going to do next?" And he said, you should write a business plan and send it to me. So I did. Uh, it took me about three months. Uh, I sent it. I didn't hear anything immediately. Um, and then I was, uh, uh, I had met with John and Nira, who had started CAP. Right. And I had worked at the Heritage Foundation. And they were sort of picking my brain about the right-wing think tank world. And they said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I have this proposal in front of President Clinton. So Nira took it to Patty Solis. Patty uh, Solisto, who became the who was campaign, running first campaign Hillpack, manager. Who, right, running in 08 first, became yes. the campaign manager. Right. And Patty took it to Hillary. Uh, this is now like late August of 03. And almost immediately, I was invited to pitch the Media Matters idea to a group of Hillary's donors, uh, her Senate Finance Committee meeting in Chappaqua, and then a few days later in Washington, D.C. And then John gave me office space at CAP uh, to help uh, me set it up and raise the original money. Let me, let me just ask you, just to backtrack for a sec, all the groups, your affiliated groups, how much money did you raise in the 2016 uh, cycle, roughly speaking? $75 million. Um, did, you, did that hit your target? Did you want to raise more? Uh, no, we've, we, we hit our target. And you know, unfortunately, I think we're going to have to raise a lot of money in this next period uh, because of the, the threat of Trump. We'll cast ahead in a second. Sure. And, and, um, yeah. But I, I still want to, because I'm, you know. Oh, and the other thing yeah, I yeah. should mention is um, when, when we're talking about correct the record and priorities, um, I was on the board of priorities. Of course. But as far as I know, the board never met. <laughs> Unless they met and didn't invite me, I don't know. Um, and uh, priorities, uh, there was some significant issues about the uh, kind of the reshuffling of yep. priorities. Uh, the previous executive director was moved out. Guy was moved in. Right. One of the other things that l let's talk a little bit. Uh, so, could I just just yeah. touch on one and one yeah, thing yeah. on Because this is another thing that needs to be understood. Yeah. And you were referencing it, I think, with the the darkness and Trump. Um, so, the campaign priorities and correct the record and bridge, uh, American Bridge. We were all operating from the same template, narrative template about Trump. One, he was unfit, temperamentally dangerous. Two, divisive, sexist, racist, uh, xenophobic. Three, fraud, uh, con man, in it for himself only. And what happened was Bridge, which was doing all the opposition research on Trump for 
the independent groups, sharing it with all the groups, uh, did work in all three. And actually, most of our work was in number three, three which seem, was the business And three research. seems to be the biggest one, right? Right. Yeah. So, um, so we did the research, and the idea was the model is priorities makes ads off the bridge research. Um, but what happened was the campaign and priorities each independently decided to put the money on number one and number two and to put no money on number three. Really? Yes. And when you look back on it, and you know some of this is hindsight, obviously, uh, when you look at the Rust Belt and you remember that uh, what was priorities did successfully uh, in 12 to Romney to show him to be a vulture capitalist and the casket ad and all of that, I was arguing that we needed to show Trump to be an economic predator with number three. And uh, but all we could do was I brought one thing. You know, we had we had testimonials from Trump's victims. This is a, a, a Latino woman who worked in right. uh, Trump's casino, one right. of Trump's casinos in Las Vegas that they tried to they voted to unionize and Trump fought it. Uh, we had these people on tape, but there was never any money behind it because we don't we were not the ad fund. But I, I thought one of the most effective moments when I was doing takeaways on the first debate was the moment where she talked, where she compared her father yes. to the, I was like, wow, I want more of that. And let me tell you, so did Brid I. Bridget and I just did, and that was working. I think. It was, Bridget and I just did an interview with uh, Tim Ryan uh, yesterday and he, he's got a real ear for this stuff. Ryan said, uh, with respect to the carrier thing, Ryan is his, I guess this has become a kind of a talking point in the last 24 hours, but Ryan said, I, I support my president, but why is this billionaire, now the leader of the free world, picking on this guy in Indiana who's just trying to get higher wages for his people? Yeah, that's right. Why is the big guy picking on the little guy? That's right. That, and, to me, strikes me, if you're going to come up with an anti-Trump argument, I can't imagine anything that's better than that one. Yeah, right. I agree. And yeah. you know what was said was, well, he was branded too well as a successful businessman. And I said, well, so was Romney. And uh, uh, so uh, that argument wasn't... Uh, wasn't uh, although all the research was devastating, uh, it didn't reach voters, and uh, I think that was it. Ended up that one and two weren't as strong, and 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 also you have a lot of money, so do all three. Well, <laughs> you know, before we get on to kind of pitching for it, I want to sure. I want two things. To what extent do you think? Now you know both of these people. Let's start with the president. You talk with him from time to time. Yeah. We're hearing, we're hearing any number of things that he was the one who was pushing for the upper Midwest strategy a little bit more, the white, the white working class stuff. How much of that's true? What was, what, what, where was his head during most of this campaign? What do you think his complaints were? Yeah, I have to be honest. I don't know. Um, uh, it's not that we didn't speak, but um, I had my complaints and... I voice those, and I, so I don't know. I mean, I only know really what I've read, and uh, 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 so I, I, I can't tell you. Uh, do you think he was in general? I mean, from your conversations with him, sure. Let me let me narrow it down. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Do you think he was happy with the way the campaign generally was being run, or do you think he was sounding alarm bells? Oh, he was sounding alarm bells. Yeah. What have you heard? Those alarm bells might have been. Well, I had heard that, um, and I just want to be clear, it's not something he said to me. Um, I had heard that there was, a, there was a belief that the campaign was overly reliant on its analytics, uh, concern that the model might not be right, uh, concern that there was really no persuasion going on. Uh, and uh, that was the primary thing I heard. So it was voter mining as opposed to broadening, so deeper as opposed to wider. Correct. That's right. So the two axes. What people, I guess, people, what what data and analytics people think of for the uninitiated. And we had a very couple of very good podcasts on this as well. Is there's an X and a Y axis. And yeah, that's two, right. So yeah. I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, I I had donors uh, canvassing in Philadelphia the last weekend, and uh, I did it with them, and uh, I'd never uh, done that before. And uh, we were given a script, uh, and we targeted the people who were going to vote for Hillary. Uh, and then basically you're supposed to pin them down on uh, uh, how they're going to vote. Uh, but if there was hesitation, uh, you were supposed to move to the next door. Right. Um, and I didn't understand that. And I've never done this before. And then someone told me that most campaigns, they have a persuasion script where if there's hesitation, you do try to get their vote. Oh, that's interesting. So they weren't trying. 
That is really interesting. And of course, the, uh, the, the Burbs, uh, the Philly Burbs was the whole damn story in, yeah, in Pennsylvania right. for those guys. Because they, they outperformed, uh, I think they outperformed Obama in, uh, in Philly. Okay, let's talk in about... In Allegheny County, for sure. And yeah, I think in Philadelphia too, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, was, uh, I was always under the impression that you, if they hit 500, they had a good... If you're a Democrat and you hit 500 in Philly, you're good. I think they were 584 or 586. Yeah. Um, Hillary Clinton. Yes. Somebody you've known for a long time. Somebody yeah. who's had a huge impact in your life. Sure. Um, let's ask, how do you think she personally handled the email thing? Let's, from the very start in terms of the creation of it to the way that she dealt with it. Any critique of that? No, I mean, my, I've already given it. She followed yeah. the wrong advice uh, from her senior leadership in the campaign. But is it, l- let me push back a little bit. Donald Trump. And, I mean, I imagine. Yeah. I'm imagining. Yeah. So we referenced earlier that she didn't say the full apology didn't come for five months. Right. I imagine she didn't want to do it. I know she didn't want to do okay. it. Okay. Well, right. she heard the strength was right. Well, she, in my she, opinion. She didn't want to do it. Cheryl Mills didn't want to do it. Bruce Lindsay right. didn't want to do it. They were right. Um, which is counterintuitive. That's right. Um, what do you think of her? Uh, what do I think of her? Well, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> so just so people that, so people know uh, who don't know the history, um, the reason, uh, the way she changed my life was I had written a, 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 a book that attacked Anita Hill after the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings. The real, real, real Anita, Anita Hill. Hill in 93. And uh, it sold very well. And I got a million dollar advance to do the same thing to Hillary. And you were working for the American Spectator. I was at the American Spectator. And uh, yes. Uh, so I got the advance and I went to town. And uh, uh, what happened, though, is a couple years after the a year or so after the Anita Hill book came out uh, through a complicated story that I tell in Blinded by the Right. Long story short, I, I, I came to know for a fact that the people around Clarence Thomas who helped me with my book and were my sources didn't believe their own friend, and I was sold a bill of goods. So I had You've been fr- lied to. Yes. And I did some terrible things, too, uh, in that period um, uh, to cover up the fact that I was lied to. Uh, Give me just one I, example. Well, I wrote a review of the book that Jill Abramson and Jane Mayer wrote, which took Hillside and had some more evidence in it. So what I did was they had written, it gets complicated, but they had yeah. written a long review of my book in The New Yorker, taking it apart. Yep. So I was going to do the same thing to them. So I went, this is how I found out. I went back to my sources and I said, it would be like, it wasn't really a journalistic instinct. It was more a political instinct. Like basically you say, They've got five new pieces of information that I, David Brock, have never heard before, before. And I thought yeah. I had I knew the case. Yeah, yeah. What, what are we going to do with these things? Right. One of them was a new accuser. Uh, and uh, they had the name. And basically, I blackmailed that woman into taking back the story she told Jill and Jane. So that's the lowest point that we get to in my story. Right, right. Um, so anyway, the book comes out, and it's basically and this was the a, most fair book I could possibly produce. And you were excoriated by... Yeah, and that's and you, how I get thrown out. You got... You got and, but you also had... I mean, the thing, for, and people really should uh, read the book, uh, you really did have like a total personal epiphany. And, I did. Uh, and so Hillary... I came to view Hillary through the course of that book as someone... Uh, as a good person. Um, uh, that was the, it, the... the Where I separated from the right was on the question of Hillary's character. Right, which is which is yeah. ironic considering what how this all turned out. You've been right. on this you've been on this trail as long as anyway. I've been, and I should just say doing this for twenty years. Yeah. At the time, blinded by the no, even several years when you were first starting to really establish yourself with media matters. Right, there were people who were very close to Hillary Clinton up until I would say it was probably eight years ago, seven eight years ago. Didn't trust you still. Yeah, well, apparently the the Manchurian Candidate reference from Mirror was. <laughs> I think there may still be some. <laughs> You know, um, I don't know. I, I, I think that case has been proven uh, somewhat decisively would, at this point. I would, I would point. hope so. Uh, it's take, uh, well, which brings us to another uh, thing, um, which gets more to health and general welfare. Yeah. Tell us about this Comet Ping Pong thing and oh. uh, Pizzagate and your personal connection to this stuff. And do you think that has anything to do with why this place was targeted? I do. So basically uh, what happened there was... Um, uh, James Alifantis, uh who is the owner of Comet, and uh, we lived together for 10 years in a relationship uh, that ended five years ago. James has his own relationship with John Podesta. 
Um, and in the WikiLeaks, it came out that James had written to John about doing a, a Hillary fundraiser at Comet. Uh, so this was seen and uh, a conspiracy theory was woven around it. And what you had was a kind of insane crowdsourcing mm -hmm. of the issue. And they found the link to me pretty quickly. Right. Uh, so I think it added fuel to the fire. Right. Uh, and so it's frightening, though, because the fake news and I saw it firsthand has real consequences. So James came to my house uh last Thursday night, so a week ago, to show me the latest death threats on his phone. And they were so vile and so menacing. It was very upsetting. I'm sorry. And I thought something bad could happen. I'm sorry. So, anyway, the good news is nobody got hurt. Not and good. I think that all the attention has been, is like a, a way of staying safe. I hope so. What's the stress level? We just got a taste of this. How much stress does this sort of put you under? Well, a lot. I'm scared. You know, I think that, uh, you know, I've been, I've worked harder in this last month uh, trying to figure a way forward than I have since I started Media Matters. Right. And the reason for that is I went to Hillary's concession and uh, there, I had donors there who said uh, some variation of, um, tell us what to do now. We want to stay in the fight. So I've been focused very constructively on a roadmap for, the, for going forward for my own groups. Uh, and I've been in a lot of conversation about work that needs to be done that's beyond the purview of my groups right. because we're in a bad situation in the Democratic Party. Hillary loss has exposed the lack of democratic power in this country at all levels. Uh, and so uh, so it's been stressful, but um, I, I haven't been disoriented uh, during this period. I've been very focused, um, and uh, I believe that what we are facing is a threat to our system of government. I think that Trump has autocratic tendencies. I think he's setting up a kleptocracy. Um, and we need voices of the opposition. We won the popular vote. We ought to act like it. And so I think the strategy is, uh, it's, it's pretty simple. The strategy is to keep Trump unpopular. And let me tell you why we need to keep him unpopular. Because... If, in fact, we are on the road to something other than democracy, and I'll, I'll not pronounce the name right, but Ross Douthat uh, mm -hmm. wrote, used the term uh, proto-fascist to describe Trump and his movement. So it's not, I'll attribute it to a conservative writer. Um, One thing I will say, yeah. just for, I, I disagree, uh, keep going. Yeah. I, I, I tend to view that as a... a a fairly extreme articulation of it. I just want okay. to add that sure. out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, anyway, so yeah. um, uh, so I'm setting up my groups to resist and oppose Trump, uh, and uh, the main activity will be in American Bridge and Crew. Um, uh, the uh, I announced this week uh, in a press call that we're going to have a, a Trump war room in American Bridge that includes setting up a world-class vetting operation for the thousand or so people who need to be Senate confirmed. Uh, and we'll be filing FOIA requests and doing all sorts of research in there. And we'll be giving that material uh, to the Senate. And we can get into what might happen to the material when it gets to the Senate, which will be interesting. But I believe that we need strong voice of the opposition. We are creating the infrastructure for it. Um, crew, as I said, we're going to significantly beef up. And so the question for Democrats is going to be, um, I think the dividing line now, there's still Sanders and Clinton residue, and there's a DNC chair fight. Uh, but I think that the real dividing line is going to be between those who want to accommodate and appease Trump and those who want to oppose and resist. And we're on the oppose, resist uh, side of this. Um, uh, Isn't there a third cohort people who want to appear as if they're appeasing but want to undermine undermine him? 
like sure, like to appear as if they're walking with him a fair way up the road, and then have sure. to get off. There the are road. variations, but yeah, yeah. you know, like let's take the, the talk about the infrastructure bill. Right uh, now, it's been exposed by Paul Krugman and others as uh, tax credit. Stuff. Yes, yeah. as 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 what it is. Right. Um, but also, you know, we don't have Donald Trump's tax returns, so we don't know how he stands to benefit from that bill. So I would say Democrats, no. I would say on most of the nominees we've seen, uh, no. Except with one exception. Um, I like the presence, with the exception of Flynn, who, whose son was involved in Pizzagate, right. as you know. Yep. Um, uh, I like the presence of the generals because the generals are professionals. Right. And if, in fact, you think I'm exaggerating, but if, in fact, we start to see democracy chipped away at, they are the resistance to Trump. He doesn't even know that. But so I would I would the, the talk, pretty, I'd that, give them the waivers. That is pretty chilling. I'd give them the waivers. But the rest of them uh, I have serious issues with. Let me ask you on the issue, because uh, the hacking thing, I don't want to necessarily get too deep in the weeds on the Russia stuff. I was sure. heart, I was heartened to hear, very heartened to hear Lindsey Graham, John McCain and I think Marco Rubio speak very forcefully that they want to see a, a Senate investigation into the Russian involvement. I, yeah. That was something I was very concerned about happening. I am yeah. very, very, very heartened to hear that because I think that's, an, a, again, a small D, not a large D uh, issue. But hacking. Dean, uh, uh, I, I guess it was uh, Corey Lewandowski went after Dean Bikay. Dean Bikay said he'd be willing to go to jail in order to get however uh, Donald Trump's tax returns were obtained, yeah. right? Right. Do you think... And again, I, I'm not asking you to incite an illegal act, but if you were to come, do you think Democrats should try much more aggressively using various means to try to get that information? I do. So here's the thing. Uh, we were in American Bridge. We, we were very aggressive uh, to try to get everything we could. We were in the middle of a lot of stuff that never will be public. Uh, we kind of fly by under radar. Media Matters is sort of a strong brand mm -hmm. out there with a big website. Bridges sort of doing intelligence gathering. So look, we ran down every every lead. I personally ran down a, a lot of rabbit holes, but but you know, uh, but yeah, we're in a different era now. So what I would do strategically is I would look to places that Democrats have power. So I would look at states' attorneys general. Uh, I would look at state legislatures. Uh, I would like to get uh, Trump uh, into discovery. Uh, I'd like to subpoena him. I'd like to put him under oath. Uh, so I think we need a strategy around how to use the power we have. And a lot of that will be about uh, about litigation. And crew, as I said, is a small group. We're going to need a lot of help from Democratic lawyers around the country who want to do this. And I already have some money for, uh, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I would call it a fishing expedition. Um, and I don't want to go much further because we want to see what we can find. How much but, money do you think you have to raise in order to be? Do you have to? Because yeah, uh, Judicial question. Watch, Tom Fitton, yeah. have been, they're the ones who got the State Department emails. I mean, what do you think the threshold yeah. is to really be able to do this? So we're having a donor conference in the inaugural weekend uh, in South Florida. We were going to present four-year plans uh, and this roadmap that I've been working on. And so I can't put a dollar figure on it, but you mentioned... We raised $75 million for the cycle uh, for 16. Uh, we were going to, we made plans to ramp down under Hillary. Right. Okay. Uh, Media Matters would say roughly the same, uh, but, the, you know, correct the record was going to continue, but it, it wouldn't it be big. Uh, long story short, we're going to need that level of funding. Um, and it's out there. Donors are reaching out. Um, and uh, and uh, we'll, we'll get it, but it's, this is not going to be cheap. Um, a couple other quick questions and we'll uh, wrap up. The In terms of the, I mean, one of the real issues that's really glaring here, again, is the, is the lower you get down on the food chain, not food chain, but you go from federal to state to local, the strength of uh, large D democratic institutions in those states is, is awful. Democrats yeah. are awful at building structure. You cannot get donors to put money into that stuff. If you look at one of probably the most effective $50 million that is, I'm on this, this is my crusade. Let, most effective $50 million that's been spent in the last 20 years in this country was Ed Gillespie and the Red State Project. Absolutely, 100%. Uh, how do you get Democratic donors focused on the fact that the Waterloo, the thing that's going to really change the dynamic in the 10 years is redistricting at the state level? 
Yeah, well, we we need to get our act together uh, on uh, how are we going to make that argument? Um, Well, uh, I think it has just been exposed with Hillary's loss that when you look and you see just the devastation of the party under President Obama, uh, that there's a lot of rebuilding to do. There's no recognition of that. Um, It's been discussed for a long time. I think there's going to be urgency surrounding it. Um, There are opportunities, Glenn, I think in the midterms. Um, I think that um, uh, there are opportunities to pick up House seats. The problem is, uh, one, um, there there were districts Obama carried in 12, where the Republican incumbent was virtually unopposed at this time. We could have picked up more House seats, but we don't have a farm team, and that goes to building the state-based infrastructure. Um, We're going to be able to talk to some of his voters when the populist agenda that he ran on gets undermined by Vice President Pence and the hardline conservatives, and they take the health care away, and the tax plan is is not for the working class. So I think we're going to be able to make those arguments. I don't buy the, the kind of simplistic spin that we didn't do enough to talk to the hillbillies. Um, I think Hillary won voters uh, who made less than $50,000. The median income level of a Trump voter was $70,000, which... One thing I would say is the yeah. racial divide... Uh, has an impact with that as well. Yes. Well, it, I was going to say, I mean, yeah. I think you're dealing with the politics of resentment. You're dealing with uh, the a revolt against so-called elites, the political correctness. And, you know, the truth is, let's be honest, um, you know, I became a conservative in Berkeley because of political correctness. Right. It does exist. Right. And, you know, there's this book, Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, By J.D. Vance. Yes, yeah. which is on to maybe overinterpret something, but... Uh, you know, I mean, I'm I am a partisan Democrat, but um, are is everybody who holds anti-abortion views evil? No. Now we're going to fight them to preserve that right. Right. But you don't have to demonize. Is everybody with a gun a maniac? No. So you know who you sound like? Who? Chuck Schumer in 2006. Chuck Schumer and Rahm Emanuel in 2006. That was the last time. Remember, that whole class was John Tester. And remember, yeah, right. guns were not the issue. Right. Wait, let me get you back to Obama sure. for one second. Then, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, then we'll do the Sorry. dismount here. No, no come on, man. Yeah. This is great. Um, the, um, I was really struck in Obama's press conference about, I was kind of screaming at the TV when he talked about, well, the thing that she didn't do is recognize in these local areas and da 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 da. OFA, Organizing for America, which came out of Obama for America, was, and, and I know many of the people involved in that, and they're hardworking, well-intentioned people, was an abject failure in terms yeah. of creating a national, any sort of national institution. Right. Do you think Obama, and you mentioned this in passing, yeah. do you think Obama screwed this up? Do you think part of this responsibility was Obama's for allowing the party structures to just ossify? Yeah, they weren't interested in, uh, they weren't interested in, they weren't interested in the party and they weren't interested in the party affiliated groups like ours. So, yeah, I think they they have to bear some of the responsibility for the fact that the party is hallowed out. And that's why this DNC race is very important, uh, among other things that have to happen. And who you support in the DNC race? So, you know, I said this week that on this press call, I was asked about it. You want Ellison to quit if he was going to? I thought that it's a full-time job. So I said that uh, the next day or two, he said that if he won, he would resign his seat, which I think is the right thing. Um, I think it's premature for me to say who I'm for because I don't think all the candidates have announced um, I don't know Keith Ellison. I'd be happy to know him. Uh, I know good things about him. Uh, I know there are people with concerns uh, about him as well. Uh, I'd like to keep those private for the moment, but I don't think there. I think there'll be more candidates. And so, who stay would you tuned. like? To, anyone you'd like to see? Tom Perez has been mentioned, but he's sure. kind of backed out of that. Uh, look, yeah. So the, you know, look, uh, Jennifer Granholm, I think would be uh, great. Uh, who you know quite well. Yes, she yes. worked with us to correct the record, and right. she's got the uh, media savvy. She's got the having run a complex organization, former governor of Michigan. There are others, though. And a lot of, and for those people who are squidgy about Donald Trump, uh, she can get you into Canada. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay, two last things, kind of, sure. per, kind of personal. Yeah. Um, uh, did you screw up? Was there anything that you got wrong? Yeah. Because you're sitting here, dude. Yes. You're sitting here telling everybody what to do. What yes. Did, what did you get wrong? Okay, so. Um, this is with respect to media matters. So uh, we are set up to monitor the media. So one would think that we would have been on top of this fake news problem and we were not. Um, and I'll tell you why. Um, so it, it, I mean, it's hard. Uh, Facebook came under right wing pressure because the right wing was arguing that Facebook was liberally biased. And so Facebook got rid of a bunch of editors. Uh, and so it wasn't. And so we saw the consequence of that was a lot of garbage uh, coming out of Facebook. So we were aware of it by September. We didn't know what to do about it. And we're going to fix that going forward on a couple fronts. One, uh, there's a question about whether you can effectively monitor such a thing, because mm -hmm. our monitoring is based on shaming of people who care about their reputations, like Andrea Mitchell. Mm -hmm. uh, it, these people don't. So. There's technology that we could develop, and we need to explore that. But the immediate thing is, to go back to Pizzagate, is Facebook, Reddit. Uh, we need Nancy Pelosi and Dianne Feinstein's help with these companies. They raise a lot of money in the tech industry. They need to pick up the phone and tell Mark Zuckerberg to clean his house. So we're really committed. So you don't these seven steps that he's taken... They, don't, they are insufficient in your view. I think so, yes. Um, but this is a complex problem. I don't have all the answers. What's the legality? I made, I made yeah. all the groups do postmortems. Right. Uh, and so I, I'm, I, I feel that uh, we didn't have a strategy that was the right strategy in Media Matters. Uh, uh, I've made some managerial changes in the groups uh, this week. Um, I promoted the guy who uh, ran Media Matters to, to uh, who's excellent cool. to a new job, Bradley Baychock, yep. to be chief of staff to me. Because the other thing I realized in these postmortems is, to be honest with you, this is a sprawling, complex set of organizations. We employ about 280 people and we need tighter management. Uh, and I, my deal with these group leaders is I'll raise you the money. I'll give you my strategic advice. Right. If there's a problem, you got to come to me. Now, the fake news thing, I didn't know about the Facebook firing of the editors, right? right? So there was right. a problem. Nobody brought it to me. Bridge, I feel like we have a clean conscience. We walked through what we did with Donald Trump. It wasn't our fault that no money was put behind the argument that he was a fraud and a con man. Uh, and so I, I feel good about that. So uh, I guess the last thing is in terms of Clinton herself. Yeah. Is she done? Is this it? Uh, so... My sense is, uh, you know, 66 million people voted for Hillary Clinton. Uh, that's more than voted for Donald Trump. It's a lot more than voted for Bernie Sanders. Um, something, I'm not saying she's going to do it, but those supporters, that they, the, they are the opposition, okay? So we need to marshal that. Will she play a role? Um, so I, she called me um, last week. And we had a long conversation, uh, and I uh, we did not talk about what she would do specifically uh, at all. I expressed some thoughts, uh, and uh, my sense is she will re-engage when she's ready. And I think that's what her supporters want, and that's what I'd like to see. Uh, and uh, one quick follow on that: What do you do? You see her potentially? Do you see her participating in the in? The marketplace being somebody who speaks out from time to time about what she doesn't believe is right. Do yeah. you see her, for instance? She's now free to fundraise uh, for groups such as yours, sure. right? Well, that would be a huge help, and we would welcome it. Um, I think uh, she's not going to just retire. You know, one of the things I said was uh, from a, you know, you're asking a personal question. Um, you know, we've been fighting these Clinton wars for 20-something yeah. years. And the way the election ended with the Comey effect and the crooked Hillary, it makes it look like for the moment that we lost. And I don't like that. I don't like to lose. So <laughs> some more chapters have to be written. And I offered to help. Well, David, thank you so much for taking Thanks. the time. Appreciate it. Down, but you never got touch. It's gonna make it through.